Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Evening everyone, this is Talk of the League, or as I like to call it, let's try not get cancelled this week. We're trying to keep that streak going, so if you're listening, please please don't report us. We'll try our very best to behave ourselves. As you can see, I'm in the hosting hot seat for the evening, um, which to tell you the truth, I com- which completely slipped my mind until just before. We were due to come on. Uh, unfortunately, because of technical difficulties, it wasn't making it easy for me. But we're here now, 50 minutes late, albeit. Um, but tonight I'm joined by a Titanic panel. Uh, I can't really complain with the replacements. Uh, Nate, I'll come to you first. How are you, mate? Yeah, really good, mate. Yeah, I had a bit of time off work this week. It's been my birthday week, so I've been spending time at home, spending time with the family. So it's been really nice. No worries. I wish you the happiest of birthdays and uh, big 60, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Cheeky fucker. (laughs) No worries. And uh, below us both, we've got uh, everyone's favourite Ryanair Red. Dara, how are you, son? I'm all good. Uh, Long day of work, but as expected, but uh, looking forward to it. No worries. Still looking slick, slick as ever, as always. I try. No worries. Right, so let's have a look at what we've got to talk about this evening, because uh, it's been quite an interesting week this this week. I think, um, you know, we support United. I think maybe it's fair to start there. I mean, guys, we've seen the news this week. You know, Ratcliffe, the whole... It looks it looks like it's been approved, and then next thing you know, we're according to rival fans, we're stealing people from certain places. But Nate, I'll come to you first. What are your thoughts on the whole everything that's happened this week regarding Ratcliffe and you know the the supposed appointments and approaches? At the end of the day, it doesn't come down to whoever's we're getting in, as long as they're the best people for the job. So I couldn't care where they came from, as long as they're they're entitled to do the job. It doesn't. I could not give a shit if they came from Newcastle or City or wherever they're coming from. 
as long as they're able to do the job that we've been so desperate for the last sort of 15, 10, 15 years. Makes no odds to me where they come from, and rival fans can just shove it. In my opinion, you know what I mean. Like it makes no difference. Like as long as they're doing the jobs that we're hiring to do, and Ratcliffe's got a vision. I wouldn't say I'm excited by what's going on, but I'm intrigued more than more than anything. It's intriguing to see what he's got planned and what he's doing. But yeah, you know, it's got it's been approved apparently this week. That's good news. He can start implementing things he wants to do, and yeah, it's just in, interesting to see what's coming next. Yeah, 100% agree with you. I think the person who I saw say that it was stealing people from other places was uh, was a City fan, which, if I remember correctly, that's what they did when they first got the money. They stole, they got a bunch of players from Premier League, like Tevez, Adebayor, Torre, and then like they got the likes of Bridge, Bellamy, Given, Santa Cruz, and all other Premier League proven to build this outside of the top four super team almost. Um, Dara... Best in class is what we're looking for. Do you reckon, I mean, it's really refreshing to see, obviously, we're going for people outside of the club as opposed to, you know, looking at who's near the copy machine and going, would you like a promotion? Yeah, that's basically the best way to describe it, really, because you look at the way Glazers have done their inner work. They've kept the businessmen from the start in the club and they've just promoting the most people as they uh, please, basically, until the point that the fans would abuse uh, an individual so much that they say, fuck this, this isn't for me, I'm gone. But look, it's, a ref- as you made the point, it's refreshing to see Ineos actually thinking outside the box when, in the Glazers' mind, it's thinking outside the box of actually having to go outside of the club to get the right people for the job. And, like, just the thing, the Glazers have set the bar so low, anything, anything, that Ratcliffe and Ineos, Ineos will do will actually look like a godsend because, I mean, so they have Brailsford and uh, Ratcliffe themselves were at the Munich uh, commemoration there on the 6th of February, something we've never seen under the Glazers in 19 years of ownership, to the best of my knowledge, but let's be honest, it's probably a, a given that they didn't have or haven't done that before. That's what I mean. The bar set so low by the Glazers... Ratcliffe can come up and shake your hand and be like, Avram or Joel never did that for me, so obviously he's going to be better than them. It's just a simple thing, and like going back to what Nate said, it's a case of, quite frankly, we don't really care who comes in because Ineos have done their due diligence enough, they've been doing enough work behind the scenes, waiting for this moment for the ratification of their uh, or of their 25% stake to be completed that they've done their due diligence enough to know who they want to take. Obviously, I'd be, lying, I'd be lying now if I told you I knew much about Omar Barada before we were announced that we were taking him as CEO. I'd be lying if I knew a whole lot about Dan Ashworth. Like, fair enough, you see the work that he did with Brighton, but like he was only sporting director there. He was obviously working with a very good recruitment team back at Brighton. So whether we poach Brighton for their head of recruitment now is one thing I've been hearing and honestly going by their track record I wouldn't be completely against it if we did I can't uh, the name's gone for me now but if they if we did decide to uh, go in for the head of recruitment at Brighton I would not be disappointed because obviously like I said in Yassel done their due diligence they are also in talks for someone from Bright or from Southampton I believe so again they've obviously been looking around they've seen who they want and 
from what I'm hearing of different track records. If they approve of such a man to come in and do the job, I'm going to approve it because anything's better than a businessman in a footballing position. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, for years we've seen the wrong sort of people operate in the footballing side. You know, like Woodward came in and opted for this Galacticos approach because of the shirt sales, you know, big names. And mm. they just never had the structure because me and Reese have talked about it on multiple shows. That can work, especially at a Club mm. United size. The problem is we've never had the structure in place from people in the boardroom. So even the manager. If we got mm. Ancelotti after Sir Alex, for example, a Galacticos approach might have actually worked. And actually, just to take on that, then you might even go as far as to say, no, it's all coulda, shoulda, woulda. But imagine if David Gill didn't leave the same time as Sir Alex Ferguson. Mm. But Ed Woodward was in a kind of secondary position to David Gill. Would that approach work? Because I do think it would, because David Gill is, well, he's still in touch with Ineos now about... Uh, the ins and outs of the structure of the football club. So something tells me that he's been keeping his eye on the ball all this time still because they wouldn't be looking at David Gill as a source of inspiration, shall you say, when the ratification was in the process. Because I've, I think I said it even previously on the, one of the, uh, the pods here, that if you kept David Gill but left Fergie on his own and you had someone with the Galacticos approach, it could have worked. But unfortunately, it was just a case of all businessmen in all the different footballing positions, it was never going to work. Yeah, 100%. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like you both have said, it's been such a low bar that it almost looks like no matter who we get, it's a plus. Mm. The analogy I've used before is like a King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table or like a, an Avengers like Assemble approach mm-hmm. where before it would be Sir Alex and David Gill doing what now you have four or five specialist people doing in terms of roles. So it's not about get David Gill and Sir Alex. It's going to be a, you've got the coach or the manager to focus on the football side and you've got four or five different people specialised in certain things. You know, you have your, you have your Paul Mitchell for recruitment, for example. You have mm-hmm. your Dan Ashworth for just as a sporting director, whatever the roles are. But each of them, you get them on their strengths. For example, Maldini, you bring him in to sort out the financial side or the contract side of like players. But looking at what strengths these people have done, I think is the way forward. I mean, there's just so many different things coming out. Obviously, we've had the approval, the Ashworth news, and um, city director, not mm-hmm. city director, Southampton director. My, when you look at Ashworth, obviously there's so much praise, but do you worry that, Nate, I'll come to you first with this. Do you worry that there's so much pressure on him, not just for a club the size of United, but also there's so much credit being given to him, but he, he can't have been alone doing what he did at Brighton and at Newcastle. So is there a worry that all that pressure on him, if he doesn't get the right people around him, could set him up to fail? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I would imagine it would be similar to how when you bring a manager in, they bring their own backroom staff in. So I'm assuming that he may bring in two or three of his own assistants that have worked with him in the past. But, you know, the way you gain the reputation you've got in the game and the way you gain that that pressure 
it's because you've done a good job. And he has proven himself in the past at other clubs and he's done very well. So the fact that there is pressure on his back should be more of a, a get up and go sort of thing to make sure he implements what he's implemented in the past and bring what he needs to bring to the club. You know, it's all, it's all well and good going in gung-ho and doing what you want to do. If you've got the right people around you, they'll sort of say, well, we need to do it slightly different to when we did it here and slightly different to when we did it here. But I would imagine it would be the same sort of process. He's obviously going to bring in his own backroom staff and bring two or three of his own assistants with him to give him that sort of support he's going to need. But when it comes to pressure, you need that in because, you know, United are one of the biggest clubs in the world, if not the biggest. So he, he must understand what a job he's got to take on and what a like we've been saying, a low bar has been set by previous people in the job. You know, it's, it's a case of you had Ed Woodward, who I think we'll all agree was a brilliant businessman and made a lot of money for the club. But when it came to football, he he didn't have it. And he went for that Galactico's feeling because that's what he thought was right. But when it came to shirt sales and business, he was making us money. We can't complain about that. But if he had someone alongside him doing what he, what should have been done and having that footballing approach... We could have done better along with all the managers that have come previously up until Richard Arnold took over. So it's difficult to see how the pressure isn't going to be a good thing in this situation because he's obviously coming in with a big task on his hands, but he has to have the right people around him, which I'm assuming he will do. Yeah, 100%. Um, Dara, in terms of obviously you see how it looks like we're poaching people from other clubs. Do you, what do you think that looks like to the footballing world? You know, we've already had Klopp come out and say he's quitting at the end of the season, you know. It's clearly obvious that United getting their act together is having him run scared. <laughs> um, but what do you think that means when you say, oh, United are making moves here in the footballing world? Uh, if I'm being honest, well, I'd like to believe that... Uh, Klopp is leaving because he he knows what's coming with United, but in reality, like the way that United are being portrayed right now in the media, especially the height or the way that City fans and the barcode fans are saying, "Oh, they're poaching our sporting director, they're poaching our CEO." Does that that show that they're actually still scared of Man United in reality? When you consider they're in, they're still talking about us when we're. Let's be honest, we're not doing the greatest this season. We're back on the up, we're not doing the greatest, albeit. We're actually getting football people into the position. We have uh, someone who actually gives a shit about the football club, to say the least. If, if the pieces come together, the uh, opposition fans are going to know what's coming for them, and it's going to be a repeat of their childhood because a lot more childhoods are going to be uh, broken if uh, we get our way. Because if if the media are portraying us as po- poaching people, then it shows we're doing the right thing. It shows we're on the up. It shows we're Manchester United, the biggest club in the world. And as the great thing goes, hated, adored, but never ignored. So we're on the up, as I as I would like to think, uh, going on how we're looking right now. It's fair enough. Nothing changed but the weather with that one, you know. Um <laughs> Listen, it's all looking well and good, you know. I think with the ownership new coming in, it's no one is out here obviously saying Jim Ratcliffe is the answer. You know, this 25% or the sporting control, um, we don't know. It's it's still early days, you know. It could still go wrong. It could go so well. And I think that 
I think the perception in the media is inaccurate because whilst there is the sentiment of anyone but the Glazers, which may have some accuracy to it, it's more of a we as United fans have hope rather instead of belief, if you catch my drift, mm-hmm. that hope that someone can come in and sort out this mess of a football club and then watch it all filter from the top down. Mm. So at the end of the day, no matter whether you wanted Ratcliffe in or Qatar or whoever, just see what happens. Hope we can just hope that they do the right things necessary for the football club. Because I said at the end of the day, it's, it doesn't matter whose side you're on, it has to be United's side and it has to be what's right for the football club. And all we can hope for is that Jim Ratcliffe employs the right people and the right concepts, which brings me nicely to the next point of the concept of the blue cards. <laughs> oh, here we go. We'll talk about that briefly because I don't know. I mean, I've always been of the impression that if someone is showing a certain kind of behavior, surely you just be an incompetent ref and you give them a yellow card for dissent. Now you're telling me that blue cards and sin bins and whatnot. I mean, Nate, do you think they'll work? Do you think no, there's any, no, there was any need no. for it? No, it's ridiculous. You know, we, we've had VAR for how many years and they still haven't got that right. So this whole idea of bringing in more ways of penalising players, like blue cards, sin bins, cooling off periods, like how pathetic. These people are earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a week to be told, right, you need to spend 10 minutes on the sideline and calm down. Get a life. You either get a yellow card or you get two yellow cards and you're off. Like, because it's going to come to a point where we're going to start criticizing these blue cards the same way we criticize yellow cards and the same way we've criticized VAR. Until you get some certain things right in the game, this whole idea of bringing in more rules and simbins and all this other crap that they're talking about, it just gives us more reasons to shout at them and give them more reasons to call them idiots. Because you can't bring in more stuff like this and expect it to go well straight away. It's just going to be the same tosh that we've had to deal with VAR get VAR right because I think I was an advocate for VAR when it came in because it was getting certain things right but you're still seeing some really big mistakes with that sort that out first then you might have to think about other things but blue cards and simbins I mean get a life honestly these players are earning a lot of money they don't need to be told you need to spend 10 minutes off the pitch to calm down it's pathetic it really is Dara you want to add anything to that? Do you resonate with that? Do you disagree? Oh no, I think like, I, I, I'm singing off the same hymn sheet as Nathan. Like, like I, I had written, written down just before we came on that, it, in my opinion, it would actually ruin the game more than VAR because I'll go on a slightly different note to Nathan. VAR is competent, and I've said this on this podcast and my own podcast before. It is a competent system. But the refs themselves and the officials in charge of it are the ones that are incompetent. Despite all their training, there's not one set of rules because correct me, someone could correct me if I'm wrong here. Because as I think I I believe it was on this show I said it before or on the Devil's Advocate podcast I said it before anyway that the English refs will have their own kind of guidelines. Say and then let's say Spanish FA will have another and UEFA will have a set guideline and FIFA will have a set guideline. But they're all different in their own shape or form. So if they all stick off one hymn sheet and uh, go with, right, this is the one set of rules and this is how we're going to do it, and get all refs FIFA trained, not just 
they're individual FA trained or whatever. If you sing off the same hymn sheet from the one organizing community, it might work. But again, it's all down to the incompetency of the officials, in my opinion. Uh, like if you're going to actually introduce these blue cards, though, a lot of information and a lot of knowledge would have to be publicized before we can actually understand how it actually works, first of all. And even at that, I don't think people are going to get hand over the kind of like the way myself and Nathan are saying it's a load of toss, basically. Uh, so, like, it's just a case that, like, it works in rugby because it's literally the yellow card, you're off for 10 minutes. And even at that, let's be honest, we, okay, fair, rugby has its own rules. It's a hard-hitting game anyway. But even there, you can tell the clear lines of what's a yellow card for 10 minutes in been and what is a straight red. In football, it just doesn't seem to have that set. Uh, right, this is this is worthy of a yellow. This is worthy of a red, because you look at the way VAR will review a red card, and like we've probably talked to the hill on this note, but when the ref goes to the VAR screen, he's just seeing a still image of what he's actually meant to be looking for within an actual replay. They start him with the still image, and then they'll actually show him the replay. But by the time he gets to the screen. He'll see the uh, still image and he'll have his mind made up already. Or at least he'll be told to make his mind up because I've never seen a VAR decision that has gone to the screen and the ref has gone with his own decision rather than being told, right, this is what we decided it's going to be. So, like, to go back to the blue card itself, it's just going to have a lot of information publicized about it before anyone could actually be on board with it because, as we've just kind of said there, if it's still has if VAR still have its teething problems, God help blue cards. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, the way I see it, um, it's just another reason to defend referees. Referees when they, when they don't need defending, really, because well, no, I, listen, I always, I always advocate for referees having you know had a bit of experience in refereeing myself and Reese has a habit of calling me a, a referee apologist which I'm not I just believe in fair fair argument and referees deserve their fair share of criticism especially the ones here because some of the decisions we've seen this season how do you get VAR in to help and somehow you overthink everything to the point where you're just guessing half the time it's ridiculous and now there's a, there's a whole power shift where they're trying to give power to the referees back onto the field for decisions. The problem is they don't they can't have that power because either they're putting too much reliance on someone else in that they can't handle the responsibility, or they're just genuinely incompetent and they just can't. You know, this kind of power shift was always going to happen going back from VAR to like back to the power being with the referees on the pitch. And, and there was always going to be like a a strain between the players and managers on, and the fans on one side and the referees on the other. However, you can't sit there and say that it gets to a point where you can't defend the indefensible. Mm. And referees now, now that this blue card idea is just a way of going, well, you're criticising us, we don't like it. So if you ever do that again, we'll send you off or there'll be consequences for you which it's almost it's ridiculous because it shows that obviously referees are too soft and they can't handle criticism that is justified 
you know, especially in scenarios Donald's red where... card is a prime example there, though. Mm, exactly. It's ridiculous. We've seen so much inconsistency that instead of saying, well, this is the problem, this is the problem, we're going to solve it by doing this, they're going, oh, here's a... Uh, here's another thing we're doing, which is ridiculous. You can't just sit there and go, you see in politics all the time, people will bring up what, these are the problems you currently got in the country. Oh, but we're doing this. Yeah, This is good. Exactly, yeah. That's literally what the blue card looks like it's doing now. And I just think that it worked, the Simbin rule works in rugby because there is an, there has always been a culture in rugby where between the players and the referee. Sure, you get your instances, when don't you, at grassroots level for any sport of like violence or arguments or whatever, but there's always a respect there. Mm. In football, it doesn't seem to, it just doesn't seem to be the case. And you put that down maybe not just to the attitudes of the players, but also the, the quality of the referee. It's no coincidence that we see VAR being used in the Champions League and in international competitions effectively mm -hmm. why is it in england supposed home of the best leagues in the world can't they use it it's ridiculous That's i mean yeah. nate you, is there anything you want to add on that no no i completely agree it just comes down to the fact that we referees on the pitch can't make a decision without knowing that they're going to have a voice in their ear in the next 10 seconds saying no you've got that wrong so they'll make the wrong decision just to get stop your part involved so this whole blue card idea is obviously someone's been sat at the, the, the referee's office all sitting around drinking tea, eating biscuits, and someone goes, what about a blue card? Oh, yeah, yeah, let's check that out in the media, see how that goes down, and just piss everybody else off. It's, it's ridiculous. Just give the, spend the money that you want to invest in these blue cards in little boxes for Simbins, maybe in better training for the referees, and we wouldn't have this issue. It's just such a, a stupid idea to try and put out into the world that we need these things to improve the game. And really, it just needs better training and referees. Like you say, there's no real uh, moments in the Champions League this season where we thought, oh, hang on a minute. That was a bit of a dodgy decision because the referees are better prepared in the Champions League and international competitions. And then you come over here and it's not. We are the best league in the world, but we're the worst referees in the world. Yeah, I mean, Dara, I'll put the question to you. Should the FA look to be doing what Saudi are doing, for example, in hiring referee, the best referees from other countries to work in England? I'll be honest, I didn't know that was a thing. I'll be straight honest. I never, I never knew they were actually uh, bringing referees from other countries. I genuinely thought it was just a case that Saudi referees were high, or, being, or Saudi based referees were. Uh, refereeing the games, um, like you look at no, I can't, I can't pinpoint an exact example, but someone might be able to give me the example. When was the last time a referee, or an English referee, more to the point? I'm, I know I'm speaking as an Irishman saying this, but when was the last time an English referee made a good decision in a European competition game? Because it always seems to be every time an English referee is mentioned in European competition. It's not for a good reason. Uh, I think it, I think it might be beneficial because, like, go back to the early two thousands. Imagine Kalina, probably the greatest referee of all time, managing Arsenal versus Man United in their heyday. I think I'd pay good money to just watch Kalina's. Uh, let's say 
especially with some referees now having to wear these uh, body cams. No, imagine Kalina wearing a body cam and giving absolute hell to the boys on the pitch back in the day. I'd pay good money to watch that. So, like, if, if that was an idea back then, I would have been totally on board with it because you know, for the best games, let's say, like the likes of United Liverpool, United Arsenal, you're getting the best referees there. And it, it, it just sounds on paper like it's a good idea. So I wouldn't be against this. I'd like to hear what Nathan thinks of that now, just from the fact I mentioned Kalina uh, back in his heyday. It's something that a lot of people will be on board with if you tr- uh, threw the idea out to them. No, yeah, absolutely. I think something I've been speak like talking about before with people at work and stuff is getting the referees out after the game. You know, the same way yeah. managers have to do the press conferences after the match. Get a referee there and ask them, oh, that decision you made, what was you hearing through your headset from Stockley Park? What, what was the reason for that decision? And there seems to be this protection about referees doing that. And it seems, it doesn't seem like too difficult of a thing to do. Just get the referees out to explain themselves after a game. Nine times out of ten, or maybe eight times out of ten, mm. the referees have nothing to talk about because most games don't really have many instances where you get a big story out of it. But then you get games like this season, we've had the Liverpool Spurs game with that particular offside decision. Yeah. How amazing would that have been to get a referee after the match saying, what did you hear? What was you being told? And then obviously we got it out in the end with the, the footage that came out and it was laughable. It really was. So little things like that would be interesting to see what a referee would have to say immediately after the game. Yeah, because I... The way I look at it is like not to not for as United fans using this example, but if Sky Sports can just drag Eric Ted Hag in front of a camera straight after United lost seven 0 at Anfield, mm. I don't think any referee could get away with it. Especially as you made the point there about the Liverpool Spurs game, I don't think any referee could get away with that decision and not be pulled up in front of a camera, kind of like the way a manager would be straight after a game, win, lose, or draw. It's ridiculous. Like like it's some like they're talking about Mikey up uh, the refs as well, and it's something I'm on board with because I think that's the one thing that a lot of people benefit from watching rugby, especially like the fact we're about blue cards and the sin bins, that kind of thing. It's good to kind of make that comparison with rugby because the fact that the ref is a mic is mic'd up if you're watching it on TV, whatever, but the fact that if you're actually at the game, it's actually more beneficial for those watching the game on the TV to understand what the hell is actually going on during the game. Let's say, let's say for example, United Liverpool. Tackle goes in, 10 players surround the referee. I want to hear that conversation. Whereas you hear it from any kind of a conversation in uh oh god damn it, Trevor. <laughs> but uh like that's the kind of thing you want to hear in a normal football game, let alone any rugby game. So it's something I do want to think going forward. Yeah, do you remember it was a couple of years well it goes viral every now and again. Do you remember when Jared Gillett referees did last game in the A League in Australia? And that viral video went massive when he was—he literally was mic'd up for the entire game, and he was talking to VAR. And that I, I, I might have to listen back to when I, I don't yeah. remember after that. It literally pops up on my Facebook every three months and goes massive again. So it was literally just communicating throughout the entire game of every decision and every offside and every card, and he was getting information through his ear. Just little things like that, like even if they released it at half time, just for one particular thing, little things like that would give the the fans just so much of a oh, okay, you know, we can see mm. that, or, well, no, because, you know, little, just communication between us and the referees. I mean, this whole, what was it, what's that show called that they're doing now on Sky, the whole referee watch thing? 
I haven't watched a single one. Oh, it's a woman, Darby Gallagher, Rushford's name is... The only yeah. thing worth taking from that is it pretty much explains why we don't see referee press conference, post-match conferences because Dermot Gallagher has no, can't explain some of the decisions they've got wrong this season. His job mm. is literally to sit there as a referee apologist, but there's a bunch of them where he goes, I can't explain that, when we've seen the same decision happen the previous week. So really all it does is it will expose the incompetencies of the referee more so. That's why they won't do it, because they're like, well, you criticise us as it is. Imagine if they actually came out after the game and spoke. We saw what happened in the Liverpool Spurs game. Imagine if he comes out after and goes, they told me it was incorrect decision or whatever way around it was. Mm-hmm. But then it turns out they were wrong and they weren't very clear with me about it. It would just it would just be professional suicide for all mm-hmm. the people involved in that. Obviously, the recording came out and everyone saw them for what they were, which was idiots. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I want to bring up is at the Women's World Cup, they had that communication. I think a penalty was given in the final and you heard the conversation going on between the referee and wherever the VAR room was. And you see, and then the referee afterwards turns around and she goes, penalty given for, I can't remember what the decision, but she ex- literally explained in a couple yeah. of simple yeah. points, blew the whistle, pointed to the spot. That was, as because we don't see much of that, it was quite refreshing. So I wonder if maybe... Instead of trialing these stupid different color cards, bef- like before we like collect all the color cards and for Thanos's gauntlet or whatever, um, if it'd be worth, I mean, would you guys be opposed to that? No, 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 really, no, no, no. I mean, even if they went to the screen, did, made their decision, and then pulled the managers to one side and said, "This is the decision I've made." At least somebody gets a communication from referees yes, rather than getting the fourth. Yeah. You've got the fourth official standing there going, I don't know why he's done that. You know, I'm hearing bollocks in my ear, but I don't know why he's done that. So it's up to them to in Stockley Park and the referee on the pitch, you know. Just a bit of communication goes a long way. And that I remember that final, that incident you're talking about, Julio, it's um it was refreshing to see that and have that explained like that, and there was no argument you know we've had the decision mm. from the referee we know exactly why the decision was made perfect carry on little things like that and even just to go on that didn't say there was no outcry from either manager because there was perfect communication like i'm not being funny if they could trial that in a women's world cup final why can't they bring that to the men's game because it if they're be trying it's too logical, really, for the men's world or for the men's world game of football to take on. Because if they're able to perfectly do it fine in the women's game, there shouldn't be any difference to actually take it forward to the more. Like they're trying to build this platform for women's football, understandably. But if you're trying something that actually works in the women's game, where's the difficulty in bringing it into the men's game? That's it'll, be interesting. it'll be interesting to see if they did do that same thing they did in the Women's World Cup in the Euros this year. See if they bring it forward and see, they trial it in that particular tournament. Yeah, no, Keane just made the point there. Remember, star of the match in the Euros. I actually completely forgot about that. That wasn't Keane. That was me. I just put. Oh, oh sorry. Screen. I was going to say. I was there, like... <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, do you remember the ridiculous name, Star of the Match? I didn't even know there was a thing. I didn't even compass. It was in Euro 2020. So they, instead of Man of the Match, Heineken was the sponsor, and they went. Oh, Star of the man. match is 
Harry Maguire, for example, or something, which everyone was like, he's just man of the match. Mm. Um, but no, I think you're both right. And I think at the end of the day, until until there's someone that comes in and proper cleans up the gaff in terms of referees, there might not be much change. Um, but with change, next next thing I want to talk about, um, Spurs. Some things will never change with Spurs, though. What do you want about? Well, it's a club which has had very good players that can beat any team on their day. They've always had that. You yeah. know, there was the whole Kane and Son era. Um, why has no manager been able to conquer the inconsistency? It's an interesting one, especially when you consider someone with two pedigree winners like Jose and Conte have managed to go to Spurs and not win a damn thing. Like it is a shame because like I'm not Conte's biggest fan. Like I know they kind of. Play I, actually, I love him personally. I love Conte. I'm like, not saying I take him at United. There are some pros there, but mm. I just oh, no, like, I respect I, the guy and I love what he's done. I'd absolutely agree. Like career. he's a pedigree winner, but like he's kind of like uh, Mourinho in that aspect. Like, and I love Mourinho. Mourinho is a pedigree winner, absolute shit house. The two of them are, but they both have an expiration date in their projects because, like, with all due respect to both managers, fantastic managers, pedigree winners. You look at their uh, managerial history. They haven't spent no more than what four seasons at a club. They've won trophies, unless you go to Spurs, but they've won trophies. But after like three or four years, things turn sour and it just goes haywire for them. So that's why I never went to Conte when they mentioned him between himself, Pochettino, and Ten Hag when Ollie got mm. the second day run Rangnick. It was a case that I like what he does. If we were still in this era of manager of a few years where we wanted just instant success, I'd say, yeah, take him, no bother. It might uh, go against every fiber of my being because of the style of football he plays, but I'd be there like, yeah, fair enough, he'll win trophies. But to bring it back to Spurs, like, you had two pedigree winners and nothing would change with Spurs. <laughs> like, Trevor just made the point, it's just Spurs. So, like, there hasn't been a like they've had the players to do a winning mentality team, but they've never had. As we're kind of talking about really, we they've never had that consistency, and it's one that it's been a hard one to explain with Spurs, really. If I'm honest, and if you want to take it up there, because I'm scared, I'm struggling to think of the best way to describe it, really. You know, it's so difficult to pinpoint exactly what's going wrong. I. I I'm one of these people that has talk sport on 24-7 a day. I will have it on in the car. I'll have it on in the truck at work. So I'll listen to it. And all you hear, every single time they bring up a topic about Spurs, they'll get some idiot phone in and say, it's all Daniel Levy's fault. And I just go, oh, you're just a one thick twat in you. Like, come on. I'm sorry, but he's bought you, not his money personally, but you've got the best stadium in the country, if not Europe, you know, I've, I've seen it from a distance, never been there, but it is such a gorgeous thing to look at. Yeah. Mm. So you can't pinpoint. It's all about project and all about building up. 
eventually they will win a trophy. It's probably not going to be anything serious for a little while, let's be fair. You know, they, they threw away the cup, the Carabao Cup this year pretty easily. I think, are they out of the FA Cup now as well? They're pretty much... They're yeah, they're too. Oh, yeah, of course they did, yeah. So, you know, but particularly this year, you know, Ange had a free pass this year. Let's be fair. You sell Kane and you finish in the top six, you go, well, that's pretty good because you just sold your best ever player. Or if they win something, you go, wow, you've done brilliantly without your best ever player. So Ange With no European football. Yeah. So no midweek games. Yeah, so it made no difference what Ange did this year. Apart from, If they got relegated, that would probably be the only thing they'd have a problem with. Because Ange just had a free pass. As soon as you get rid of Kane, it was like, well, if you do badly, it's okay because you didn't have Kane. You needed one season to get your foot in the door. Or if you did well, wow, you did it without Kane. So it's interesting to see the way the media picks at Ange without really any menace, if you get what I mean. Yeah, like, quite, not the way they take on United managers, basically. Yeah, and also like other foreign, like any foreign manager in the Premier League gets a little bit of stick. Whereas Ange, you know, they seem to give him a little bit of leeway because of, you know, nobody really knew anything about him before he went to Celtic. He did a really good job at Celtic, mm. but anyone would do a really good job at Celtic. So, you know, he took this job and he has been given this free pass because, you know, he came in with the anticipation of playing with Kane, not to understand that Kane was actually leaving in the space of a couple of weeks later. Mm. But it's so difficult to pinpoint exactly what's going wrong with him because we've just always been used to the fact that Spurs are pretty useless in anything they do and they bottle anything they can. You know, they came third in a two-horse race when Leicester won the league, so... It's it's just it's amazing to see, and you know I'm not against Spurs. I've never had anything about them that I don't like. You know I, I much prefer hating Arsenal than I do Spurs because Spurs have never really been a factor in anything. It's quite nice to have a team that just stays around the top five, top four, and not actually achieve anything this season. Do you know what the worst part about you mentioning Spurs being bottle jobs is? There is an argument that the red side of North London. Are bigger bottle jobs than Spurs? Ooh, that's a, think about most, it. Think I, about I, it. I think in most recent. I think in most recent. No, it's spot on in most genuinely, recent. in the last fifteen years, how many times have Spurs been in a position to win something? Champions League, Premier League, twenty sixteen. Hang on. Uh, Champ- gonna... Fluked cup run. Yeah. We're only second or third because everyone else had fallen off that season. Yeah. If you think about it, Chelsea were in 10th. United finished outside the top four, having sold a bunch of players. And Wait, did Chelsea finish 10th that year? Yeah, that was the year it just went bad for Mourinho. Oh, fuck, right. I, I lost track as to who was where. That's not disrespect to Leicester winning the league. They had no, oh, right. no, no like... They obviously had no right being up there and they were up there. But Arsenal were not good enough. City, I thought were title contenders at the start of the season. They weren't good enough. Um, Chelsea were 10th, like I said. None of the top six... Liverpool sacked Rodgers, brought Klopp in, bottled two cup finals that year and finished eighth. Mm. Bear in mind, those two cup finals was the only time I've ever seen Klopp wear a suit as Liverpool manager. (laughs) He's never worn a suit ever since. You know, obviously Champions League, they had no right being there. Yeah. Uh, but we've seen teams fluke a cup run before. That can happen. 
but that's right, Spurs yeah. slept walked their way in the Premier League season into bad form in the league. Whereas when you look at Arsenal, before 2014, their Wembley record was terrible. Their cup final record between 2005 and 2014 was terrible. They lost to Birmingham City in the final of the League Cup. They lost a couple of finals to Chelsea in the League Cup. They lost to Chelsea in the FA Cup semi-final in 09. They, they've been in and amongst the top four, the top two for various seasons and fallen away after February. Mm-hmm. Um, like they bottled the league last season worse than when Liverpool bottled the league in 2014. Because at least then Liverpool had plenty of games in hand and were top with three games to go. I, 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 for someone who likes to slag Liverpool, I might have to take the side of well, same Liverpool. level, maybe same level. Yeah, but put it this way: Arsenal have been in more winning positions than um, they've been in more winning positions than Spurs. Yeah, and they haven't won anywhere near enough. Like I suppose what I'm trying to remember how Arteta and his cup-winning team or when he first came into Arsenal at start, and he won the FA Cup in his first season, someone went, went to credit somebody, I'm pretty sure that was with Emery's team, wasn't it? That was it, was say, much, yeah. it, was, it was with Emery's team, but it was like the first five or six months of the Arteta era, half yeah. of which was choked That's what I was thinking, yeah. I was just going to say, I, was, that, I know for a fact that wasn't the full season that he had with them, so it was pretty much Emery's mm. team as we made, made the point there, yeah. But, you know, it's difficult because we all like laughing at Spurs. But, you know, it's just they've been in this rebuild project that we've been in, but they've been in it for longer. So you must think eventually they're going to cotton on to the fact that they need to invest a bit more. I'm not saying Daniel Levy hasn't invested enough, but maybe he hasn't. But, you know, it's it's just it's so easy to pick at the ownership model and your CEO when it comes to that sort of thing. But it all comes down to the people on the pitch. And Conte made it very clear in his uh, outburst mm. and what got him eventually got in the sack. He basically signed his own death warrant there. So uh, he wanted the sack. You knew straight away going into that. He was rent. bored of it. He, 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 was, he knew yeah. what he was doing. Like he wanted to get out. He needed something to get him out. He brought the club into disrepute, so they sacked him. He got what he wanted. So that was exactly. it. Yeah, I think the key thing about that Conte interview was, if you read between the lines, he was basically saying, listen, Daniel Levy, you can't expect me to succeed with playing Eric Dyer and Davison Sanchez every week. It's not going to happen. Hey, No one in their right mind can do that. Leave Eric Dyer alone. He's signed for Bayern Munich. He's good enough to play for Bayern Munich. Anyone can be. <laughs> Would you say that about Lee Grant at Man United or Rob Green at Chelsea? And any other <laughs> third choice goalkeeper over the years. That's literally what Eric Dyer's role is. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. No worries. Speaking of other clubs, talk about Brighton. Um, obviously, everyone hyped them up last season. Obviously, they were very good last season. Um, any of you want to talk about what's happened to them this season? Uh, it's it's an interesting one, really, because Deserbi is a good manager. Like I suppose, is it another example of kind of, and don't get me wrong, Newcastle are playing fantastic football themselves under Eddie Howe. But is this another case that the fact that every other top team fell by the wayside last season 
kind of like in a way that we somehow managed to finish third despite while we went on good runs, we had our fair bumps. So the way I see it, Deserby is playing fantastic football, but is the case that like last or like Newcastle last season, they're kind of falling behind because everyone else is kind of caught back up. So it's the case that they're playing the right side of football, but they're getting outdone somewhere somehow because it's an interesting one. It's like Deserby has the right team in front of him. He plays the right style. He has the right structure in the background. And it's just going wrong. It's it's an interesting one, really. I think it comes down to the fact that they've got European football this year. You know, mm-hmm. they, they didn't have that last year. And they haven't had it for number and number of years before that. You know, have to play Thursday nights and then at the weekend or a Monday night, you know, it will catch up with you. So now that they haven't got that burden, I don't believe they're still in it. Are they still in it? They're not oh, yeah. still in it. Because I couldn't tell you, no, actually. I believe so. The Europa League is that where you're, or the Conference League? I can't remember which one it is in. Uh, uh, I think they finished in. We're all going to be doing a quick search here. <laughs> you know, that's what it comes down to: is that fixture, fi- fixtures just build and build and build. They and finished top of their Europa League group. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I went searching Conference League. Never mind. Yeah, I believe it was Villa that finished in the Conference League, and then yeah. finished in Europa. Ah, yes. So. So that's all it comes down to is having a. T- they didn't, as far as I'm aware, they didn't invest that much in the summer to prepare themselves for that extra fixtures. There were still you know, some shrewd signings in the summer, so yeah, they've always they've always they've always been mm. like that. You know, their their transfer policy is so interesting to watch. You know, they'll sell a big money player and then get someone in who turns out to be the same but better, and then sell him for more money. They're such they're so good at that sort of particular transfer policy. But yeah, you know, it, that's all it really comes down to, is, as far as I can tell, is that just fixtures build and build and build and not having the squad depth to deal with that. You know, players fall off and players get tired and players, you know, anyone that's played football manager, you know, yeah. they understand that fixtures build up. Christ. But yeah, you know, I've always been a massive fan of the Zerbi since he came in. You know, it was an accident accident appointment in the end because obviously he had to leave uh, Ukraine and wanted a, wanted a club in England and managed to get the Brighton job and turned out to be a match made in heaven, whether he'll stay at Brighton by the end of the season. or I would imagine he'll be gone by summer. I think he'll probably be eyeing up the Liverpool job because it sounds like Alonso might be even going to Bayern Munich cool. if Tuchel doesn't stay much longer. So I don't think Alonso is going to be going to Liverpool. Whether he stays at Leverkusen and goes to Munich as well, yeah, that would open the door for De Zerbi to go for a bigger club like Liverpool. See, I don't like even myself, my brother, like my brother's a Liverpool fan, and he was saying the only manager he wants now is uh, Alonso. So it'd be interesting. Like, I do think he would appreciate someone like Deserbi at Liverpool, but again, the, the whole thing with Liverpool is it's going to be interesting how to how they even take their approach now because Klopp is going, his backroom staff is going. And just as, uh, just from the previous transfer window just gone, their sporting director is gone. So again, would you nearly say they're going to be on the rebuild process because their whole structure is going to have to change unless they have someone lined up in the meantime? Who knows? Yeah, I think there will be wholesale changes. Their sporting director, I think, was only in the summer anyway. 
They've had a, was... a bit of a merry-go-round upstairs since Michael Edwards left. Yeah. Klopp leaving with his backroom staff, I don't think is too out of the ordinary. But you worry about the, where the club is going to go next in terms of the, the, the team, like the mm. players. Because what you've got is you've got a side that's built with... You see the way they play. It resembles Klopp as a person. Klopp is you know, the, the almost the linchpin of that team. No matter mm. who plays, it resembles him. And you take almost the identity out of that team. You worry about the kind of fall-off the team will have. You know, I've been saying since last year that Salah will go to Saudi this summer. And now with Klopp leaving, that's that probably looks more likely than ever. I think yeah. if Liverpool didn't sell him for big money, I think it would be stupid given his age and the money they can bring in and they can invest it because a manager needs funds for a new project. FSG have been doing terrible business for a couple of years now. They didn't sign a midfielder last season. They decided to go, we'll go all in for Bellingham the summer just gone. They just, they played the whole, oh, he'll he'll, he'll call me back. And then Jude Bellingham never called it, called him back because, you know, Real Madrid is not going to turn Real Madrid down. Course, so they've yeah. got this whole midfield rebuild. Then they've had to sell the midfielders they've got, like Fabinho and Henderson, which fair enough they got money for. But there's still no structure in that midfield. That's why they're getting cut open in transition all the time. Yeah. So I just think that they're, they're in the middle of a transition. And I think Klopp leaving is probably the right time because I think he'd need another two, three years with this current board to rebuild the team adequately, at least the first 11. So Liverpool have to get it right because I think Alonso, I don't think is the best fit for how Klopp currently plays. Mm. You know, you'd think someone maybe who has a similar style would be a better fit. I don't actually have the name personally. Oh, I, I was going to say that. I having said that though, Klopp plays that unique style that you're kind of there like, there's not many do do mm. actually play that exact so though it's actually something Julian that you made the point. I'll actually put it as a question to the two of you. You made the point there that you look at each individual player in the Liverpool team, it's like a linchpin of Klopp playing himself in that regard, saying because it's Klopp's team. You take Klopp away, that's eleven individuals in that aspect. Would you say the same for Pep with Man City? Because I do feel it's because he plays that unique style that a passing style of play that if you take Pep away from that team, that fails. Because I just see the way that t- that team plays sometimes, and you can just tell that's a Pep move straight out. Like the way he's gotten Jack Grealish to go from dribbling straight at the player to actually making the pass and playing a 1 2 with, say, De Bruyne, Haaland, whoever may be in front of him, he would never that player going into City. And that's why. You look at the way Grealish, especially, I got him pointing out Grealish, especially simply because of the difference he's had to make transitioning to playing under Pep. That if you take away Pep, then it takes away the identity of that City team where it's just 11 individuals kind of playing for themselves, especially with the money they're on. So, yeah, like, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because, you know, like, it's, it's also like you go down the route of Klopp again and think, if they had any signings that they were signing up for this summer, mm. does anyone want to now come in knowing that Klopp's not going to be there? Was that was that they may have had like 
penciled signings ready for this summer with Klopp yeah. being there. And then if Klopp's decided he's not going to be there, they might have had a big money move that was excited to come and play for someone like Klopp. If he's, he's not going to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wherever he ends up, it'll be interesting. Yeah. We all know where that's going to be, though. Let's be real. I just think that, I mean, my view of it is whoever goes into City will obviously be someone from the same school, if, if, you, if you like, you know, someone who does play a very similar style to Pep. Because one thing you'll always say about managers, no one plays exactly the same way. Oh, they might have this. They might have the same principles, the same like things they've learned. But for example, Louis Van Gaal played this played a similar style to Cruyff, but it wasn't the same because the one reason one reason Cruyff didn't like Van Gaal because he was very methodical and he was yeah. very um, almost like an army general about how he went about the coaching and stuff. How he went about is this way. So I think that. City have a smart enough board, provided their board doesn't get completely nicked by someone else when if the charges come through in time, they'll probably go for maybe, I mean, I've always said Arteta is probably the prime candidate because having been there as an assistant and with very much of players who were there when Arteta was there, I think. It's like the likes of Kevin De Bruyne, for example, players who were there before. Uh, I just think that he'd be a, a right fit for them. Obviously, if he doesn't win with Arsenal, it, it's, it's fine. He'll go to City. Maybe he won't have the same level of dom- dominance with them that Pep's had, but you put that down to Pep being best in class. Mm. But he would be a good fit. I struggle to think of something like that with Klopp. Um Chabi Alonso is a good name, but I, if I was him, I'd try and be smarter and maybe gain more experience. Well, he's he's putting up trees at Leverkusen. Yeah, he's putting mm. up trees there. So, I mean, yeah. he beat Munich at the weekend and they're currently leading the table. So, it's interesting to see how that will go. But, yeah, like you say, just stick with what you know at the minute. Stay there. And then, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine him wanting to go to Liverpool this early in his managerial career. It might be career suicide or it might actually work out for him. But, Hopefully, or it might be the stepping stone he needs for the likes of Real Madrid, for example. Yeah, possibly, yeah. To end up at a bigger club. So And like I'll even say this much, like I do feel of the past Liverpool players that have gone to become managers, Alonso is the better fit. And I would have always said it's written in the stars, Gerard to manage Liverpool in the uh, uh, yeah, like literally Trevor's just trying to beat me to the punch about Gerard. Is the fact that Gerard got exposed, I feel, at Villa. He started brilliantly, and I'll, and I'll be first to admit it. I, I saw the way that Gerard started at Villa, and I said, okay, we have do our you, replacement for Do you guys remember when he stared at the crowd? Oh. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. I thought, the absolute there's a guy. <laughs> but like, honestly, like, I just saw the way he actually started with it, and I just kind of said to myself, "Okay, maybe he might actually be the Liverpool." Man. Like, my brother was there, like, "Okay, we might actually have a replacement on our hands here," because he knew eventually, whenever the dominance would have ended with Klopp, that someone would have to replace him. And he, him being Liverpool fan, he said, "Naturally enough, you say Gerard comes into place." But I think the way things went 
so downhill so quickly at Villa, would you nearly say it exposed Gerard for his inconsistencies or is it just the fact that it was so premature in his managerial era because kind of like the way we said there about Andrews, uh Celtic, anyone can kind of do anything in the Scottish League once you have the right players in front of you, kind of like the way Gerard did with Rangers, stopping the Ross. Like in France, he actually put up a fight against uh, Celtic. That many Rangers managers of recent time have actually done that, and I'll say mm-hmm. that as a Celtic fan. So to go into Scotland in, in such a dominant Celtic time as well at the time and do what he did, it's no, like, it, it's a small feat in the aspect of how pish fucking Scottish football actually is. But in the hindsight of what he actually did, you could actually see the transition. Okay, maybe this could actually work for English football. You take that to Villa. He actually did a decent job there. Kind of like the way, like, and I think that was the smarter move for some managers. Let's say, because like I thought it was too much too soon for Arteta to put, for example, to be just thrown straight into the Arsenal job. It seemed a natural fit, but I thought kind of like the way you look at Carrick with Middlesbrough. Like I'm not going to say Kieran McKenna is going to do great things, but he's showing great uh, promise at Ipswich. Lampard went to Derby, did great things, despite all the uh, stuff in the background. Rooney, to a degree, did a decent job at Derby. He uh, did as best he could with all the points deductions and everything. So the the managers, or sorry, the players that have become managers of our generation are actually doing relatively decent. It's just finding their level, becoming better than that level. And then saying to themselves, am I ready for the real transition of going up to the top tier? So, who knows, really? I think the biggest problem is they were too big too soon. I mean, Lampard, for instance, spent money in the summer to finish sixth again with Derby and not get promoted again. Got the Chelsea gig. um, Did all right when he was bringing the younger players through. But then when they spent money, the pressure was on and it wasn't as good. And I just feel with him and Gerard, their first senior jobs were good. They both made a step up and they weren't good. And maybe it was the right time for Gerard. Maybe it was too soon for Lampard. Yeah. But I just feel like that they needed more experience in the bank. They need to apply their trade more elsewhere, but yeah. not at that much of a high level. Rooney's an interesting one because you would have thought that because ever since the Derby job, it looks like, Liam Rossini, who's at Hull doing quite well right right now, he's been in that job for a year and a half, came in last season, steadied the ship, and then he's doing really well with them this season. There is an argument, because he was in Rooney's coaching staff at Derby, there's an argument to be had that without Rossini, maybe Rooney wouldn't have done as well with Derby as he did with that lot of players. It's only an argument. It, It could well be proven right. But... I just think at the end of the day, I'm sick and tired of big names getting jobs based on their name Mm. as opposed to... Because the problem you've got is you've got the likes of John Terry, for example, looking for a job and initially thinking, I could go into the championship maybe. And then being like, okay, maybe League One. Okay, maybe League Two. I don't like the idea. There are plenty of other managers in League One and League Two who have worked so hard, who have got all the experience in the world that they are being overlooked for bigger jobs for them, step-ups for them, whether it be League One or Championship, Mm. because either there's a big name, former player, big name, so they thought, okay, we'll get him because he's a big name than that, 
or in in um, Peterborough's case, it's just hiring Darren Ferguson every 18 months. Sack him, bring someone else. He's not doing well. Okay, we'll bring Darren Ferguson back. Otherwise, it's a real shame um, for that. So, you, if Liverpool get it right, that's the most important thing for them because I just think, not just with the manager, but upstairs as well, there needs to be a massive, like, a whole thing and everything needs to be aligned because it, how many times have we seen a manager be there for years, leave the legacy, and then the next man never comes in and does as well? Well, it took him so long. It took him so long to get to that crop level. It, it, it's the same as any big manager that stays with a club for so long. We had it with Fergie. Arsenal had it with Wenger. You have that period after that where things fall off, and it is natural in the game to mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Gerard is going to go into that Liverpool squad and think he's going to be able to make things better because at the moment he's done what he wanted to do: take the money and run off to Saudi. I can't see him managing in the Premier League anytime soon because he hasn't applied his trade in a in a club that, or in a, in a league or a team or anything like that. They're actually going to give you any stature, you know, going over to Saudi and all you're earning is money. You're not really earning anything out of that. Yeah, like I suppose, like like okay, we'll call it spade a spade because while we're all United fans, we're, all, we're also all football fans. Let's call it spade a spade. If Pep wasn't in City's uh, hot seat right now, Klopp would have that. Fergie level dominance because mm. the work that he did and the level that he was having that team performing second to none like there's a reason why his teams are being mentioned before Pep's teams as some of the greatest teams in the Premier League and they've only won one they won one Premier League one Champions League one FA Cup and a League Cup we won three of those trophies in 10 days it took them how many years but again that's down to the dominance of City and being able to do what Pep has done with City as well, and like I want, I want to sit here and banter Liverpool all day. I really do. But come on, when you look at the stats and you just see how Pep just pips them every fucking time, and even if if I was a Liverpool fan, I'd be there like, well, for fuck's sake! <laughs> it's it's yeah, literally the, the Premier League's been a better better place with Pep and Klopp going at it the same oh, way absolutely. as what it was like before when we had Fergie and Wenger going at it. You yeah, know, I was, was going to say imagine. Being, Imagine being an Arsenal fan back at the time of Fergie's yeah. dominance. You'd yeah, be, it's exactly the same. You'd be sick to your fucking teeth of seeing Fergie and you wonder why he, uh, we come out saying he ruined childhoods. A lot yeah. more titles were interchanged then, though. That's the thing. Between, mm. what is it, eight years where it was just constant either United or Arsenal were winning it. Obviously, we won three on the bounce, but you know, and then you had Benitez come in, then you had Jose come in, whilst Sir Alex was rebuilding that team. And there was a time when people said Sir Alex was finished and whatever. And then a, we built that a new three-in-a-row team and won the Champions League and would have won the treble that season had that Portsmouth game not happened. Like, what the hell was that? Oh, yeah. And then, But I just think that there's something about this Liverpool side right now. It's not a set team. They're not playing. They're still finding ways to win, mm. but they're not playing well sometimes. There's still a lot of work that needs doing to that team. And they've been inconsistent the last couple of seasons. But do you remember when we won the league under Sir Alex in the final season? And obviously, it looked like we were helped a little bit, I think, with other clubs falling off a little bit. Arsenal were just fourth every year because that's what they did. Spurs were never going to challenge. 
Spurs have never been in a position to challenge like like ever, let's be honest. Chelsea won the Champions League, but they fell off. They sacked Di Matteo, brought in Benitez, finished third. City were nowhere near as consistent and good as they were the year before. So we were helped a little bit with Van Persie's goals, as well as teams falling off. Nice, yeah. Now, in hindsight, when you look at that, you think, damn, that was an ageing team that, because of Sir Alex's influence and the way he galvanised those players, maybe he took those players further than what was necessary. Mm. And I just worry, from a neutral, looking at it from a, like a Liverpool set of eyes, mm. I would worry for them with this team. Yeah, it's, a similar, it's a similar thing that's coming, yeah. yeah. You see my point, there are ageing players in there, Van Dijk's not young anymore, Salah's not young anymore, you know, they've already seen the likes of Firmino and Mane go, Fabinho's gone, Henderson's gone, Milner's gone. A lot of players that were essential in their own right to that team. So Liverpool need to be smart. They can't just go off the vibes because Liverpool fans, let's be honest, a lot of them might not know that much about football properly. They always say that Chabi Lonzo, a former player, who's doing well in the Bundesliga right now. Come on, we should be getting him. Maybe he's not the right fit. Mm. I think the best fit would be if you could find someone who can emulate Klopp's style in some way or someone who's good at man-managing players. Because mm. you don't want to get in like a Jose or a Conte, for example. I'm not saying that's the right route or that's going to happen, but you know, someone who's quite abrasive, someone who could rub players up a little bit the wrong way. There's got to be a way to go about it. And then there's a whole, what style do they want to implement? Are they going to abandon their principles? There's a lot to factor in for Liverpool. And I just think that they need to be very careful mm. about who they go in for. Yeah, no, because as I, I, I was uh, coined with this term back as a young teenager when Fergie left. To any Irish fans watch, watching this, you might get the reference. Fergie left in the same way Bartir Hearn left Fianna Fáil. They knew what was coming. <laughs> they knew the downfall that was coming behind them. Any Irish fans, you'll understand that reference. <laughs> That's fair enough. Gentlemen, we've reached the one hour and nine minutes mark, which now is the point where we wrap up for the evening. Um, really enjoyed this conversation with you both. Um, happy to be Nath, here again, guys. Nath, where can we where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Dales. I'm not on there very often, but you're more than welcome to abuse me. Nice, and everyone's favorite Ryan Red. Uh, what white number can we find you on? <laughs> FR, uh, so many different numbers now, really, but uh, no, my. A uh, Twitter handle is Dara underscore Cash. I'm oh, no, sorry. Sorry, yeah. Dara Cash uh, no underscore, and then Dara underscore Cash on TikTok for anyone who like Julio likes being uh, entertained by my videos. <laughs> There's this one video he's got on there, and every time he sends it to me, it never gets old. Uh, I, it <laughs> sends me to tears. I mean, <laughs> if I, if I can do that to Julio, I think that's it all, really, guys. <laughs> I hadn't seen it for a couple of months and then Dara sent it back into the group chat because someone asked about it. At your request on this, it was at your request. (laughs) (laughs) Because someone didn't get the reference, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, nah, show the video. Anyways, yeah, people, you can find me here, there, everywhere, Twitter. You can find me under someone's 
uh, thing. You can find me on Rita's show, the World of Football podcast, where we just talk for hours and hours to no end. Um, but from all of us here, at let's not get cancelled. It looks like we've made it through another successful uh, Woo! week. <laughs> let's just hope there aren't any consequences in the morning. Um, but from all of us yes, here, Trevor got us. All... <laughs> he gets the reference. <laughs> But yeah, from all of us here at Talk of the League, have a good one and we'll see you soon. Sports Social Podcast Network.